A little bit of rage against the machine is good, right, to give you some energy. But 95% of the dis discourse has to not be rage against the machine. It has to be what we call generative. It has to be about building the new. When people whine about their past and, you know, they had this trauma, I, the reason we call it the past is it's because it's the past. It don't matter. What matters is the future. So let's build a better future rather than whining about the bad things from the past. Welcome to the Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Art of Humanity. If you're listening in real time, I hope you're enjoying the start of 2020. If you're listening in the distant or not so distant future, I hope you're enjoying whatever time of year it is and you're surrounded by people and community who love and appreciate you for you. Today's guest aligns with my mission for self-actualization. His day job is to study the scientific study of consciousness. His view is that consciousness is a biological phenomena, no different than digestion. Consciousness is pretty overused in a blatherly new age way, and this season is all about consciousness, and he has a lot of thoughts on this. He believes that consciousness is emergent from our brains, and he prefers to use the term psychological tools so that we can do various things with our minds. He has a unique message. He wants us to imagine if self-actualization becomes our number one value instead of he who dies with the most toys wins. But before we completely shift gears from game A to game B, as we'll discuss in today's episode, he believes that personal change is the first necessary step for game B to emerge. I truly believe that podcasting is the path to self-actualization. And this is good news for anyone who is into personal growth and also wants to start a podcast. The number one question that most people ask me when I say that I have a podcast is how do you make money? Well, I've created a course that will not only help you launch, but it'll get your new podcast launched right with monetization on the mind. I want to help you launch successful podcasts and convert existing podcasts into revenue generating businesses. I don't have a public page for this yet because I'm making this exclusive just to my listeners. Join me as I guide you through the steps to launch a successful podcast focused on monetization from day one. For current podcast creators, the Podcast Incubator offers strategies to grow your audience and convert your fans into paying monthly subscribers. Using the course's proven tools and the weekly group discussion sessions for live Q&A, you'll learn how podcasting can feed each and every part of your business and even cover your rent or mortgage. To learn more, please DM me on social media at beingishuman, or if social media isn't your thing, you can email me at hello at artofhumanity.io with podcast in the subject line. Now, let's get to the interview with Jim Rutt on reclaiming our cognitive sovereignty. Please note that we do use adult language in this episode. In today's show, we talk about the concept of game B, what it is and how it emerged. We discuss neo-stoicism, which is the name given to a late Renaissance philosophical movement that attempted to revive ancient Stoicism in a form that would be acceptable to a Christian audience. This involved the rejection of certain parts of the Stoic system, especially physical doctrines such as materialism and determinism. As John Calvin's objection attests, this was often seen by others to be a very difficult task. 
And as you'll see in this conversation, it's still pretty challenging, but we certainly try to move forward and build a better society. We also talk about the divide between fixing the institutions and fixing ourselves, and why the real work is in fixing ourselves through self-actualization. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and my personal preference, Overcast. Wherever you listen to your pods, find The Art of Humanity and give the show five stars. Reviews are super easy and they only take about five seconds. I really would appreciate it. To get show notes or more info, go to artofhumanity.io. Let's go to the show. Welcome to The Art of Humanity, where we explore creativity and consciousness with artists, leaders, authors, and entrepreneurs. Today, I'm so excited to have with me Jim Rutt. Jim is a complexity researcher, systems thinker, podcaster, and former key player in several technology companies. The New York Times once referred to him as the internet's bad boy due to his reputation for creative mischief. Jim is the past chairman of the Santa Fe Institute, former CEO of Network Solutions, and the first CTO of Thomson Reuters. Jim, thank you so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity. Thank you, Jessica, for inviting me. Jim, let's preface this by saying that my audience is super smart, but they're not necessarily experts on the way that you talk. So let's make sure that we don't get too far into jargon and bring uh, substrate issues up before we dive in deeper. <laughs> Sounds good. Jim, you've developed a strong interest in how complex social systems, especially societies, work and change, and how such knowledge can help us build a better society. Reading through your articles on Medium, particularly around the topic of liquid democracy, Game B, and reclaiming our cognitive sovereignty, a lot of the ideas that you present are still conceptually too hard for a lot of people out there to understand, which is super exciting to me, by the way, because we're really on the cusp of a new paradigm. These ideas that you present are congruent with the fact that millennials, some of the Gen Xers, do not like top-down rigid structures such as representative democracy. So before we dive into those, you know, a lot of these ideas that you present, let's start with the difference between game A theory and game B theory. We can go deeper. And I also want to ask you more questions down the line about corporate America and all that good stuff. But let's just start with game B because I feel like that's a good introduction. Okay, well, a little caveat on that, which is I am not heavily involved in the creation of game B at the moment consider myself more of a fanboy and a helper. If you really want to see where the straight dope is these days, there's a Game B group on Facebook, which is open, but you do have to answer the questions. So if you go to it, it'll ask you to answer three questions. If you don't answer it, they won't let you in. And that's where really the cutting edge work is. I was involved in the first generation of Game B and defining it back in 2013. And so I can give perspectives from those days and also what I get from following what's going on today, but people should not assume what I say is the state-of-the-art Game B thinking. For sure. And I think Jordan Hall is also another person who's pretty informed about this topic as well. Yes. Jordan and I and a group about another 25 people, Jordan and I being kind of the front people, were the ones that, in fact, it was Jordan who concocted Game B in January 2013, at least throughout the term. And then by March, he had put a little bit of meat on the bones. Daniel Schmottenberger is another key person on the work today. Uh, Numerous other people. Brett Weinstein's been, Weinstein's been associated with it all along and many more. As I said, these days I'm more a helper and advisor rather than a real creator. 
But you alluded to it, actually, in passing, the sense of Gen Xers, as you described them, I think it's even stronger for millennials and the Gen Zers coming up, is sort of a distaste for hierarchical organizations, top-down command and control rather than networked organizations where we all interact as peers to a greater or lesser degree. And if we take on the leadership responsibilities on a peer network, it's for some specific purpose, for some duration. It's not about climbing a hierarchy with well-defined boxes on a chart. I think deepest level, that is the distinction between game A and game B. I think another huge fact or distinction between game A and game B It's the Game B view that Game A, as it's currently being played, will very likely end up with the collapse of civilization and deaths of billions as we run out of capacity in the ecosystem, have greater and greater conflicts within our society based on ever-growing inequality, when super-empowered individuals like hackers and possibly bioterrorists let loose shockwaves, when outside events, maybe a big solar flare stress our systems, and that game B has to rethink the whole social operating system so that our society is not a march to the cliff of collapse and catastrophe. Some good lighthearted topics right there. (laughs) Absolutely, right? (laughs) Yeah, what else? I would call it a tension within game B, and I believe that both are important. One is that people need to think in new ways. Essentially, people need to reprogram themselves away from game A thinking. Classic game A thinking is consumerism, for instance, hierarchy, status, obsession with fashion or appearance, etc. And game B thinking is to engage in playing the game of life for its own enjoyment not playing the game to score points in some game that's been created by marketeers politicians, religious figures, etc. That's a big difference. So changing your mind is part one. But the second is that Game B also has to have institutional structures that help us bring out the best in each other rather than ones that bring out the worst. One that we have focused a fair amount in the past, I don't think they're focusing on it quite as much as we did in the past, things like monetary systems. Our, Our current monetary system has a very specific structure the way it's built around bank loans and central banks, et cetera, having supply of money that's managed by the bankers and the central banks and not enough money to pay back all the loans that are made. So the system is always precariously on the edge of collapse. If it doesn't keep growing, it will collapse. We think that's a built-in design flaw in game A. We believe we'll still need signaling networks, and I say networks with an S intentionally. Maybe there's multiple things that are kind of like money in game B, but they don't have this runaway freneticism about them. Another example of game A runaway rushing to our destruction is this horrifying attention economy that has emerged around things like Facebook, Twitter, etc., where these things are essentially machines to try to grab our attention to stuff either inflammatory things from other people or even worse, stuff marketing messages in front of us to manipulate our behavior. In a game B world, we would consider those meme space pollution. The meme space, the subject of memetics, the idea of memes, the unit of cultural transmission, needs to be protected just as much as our physical ecosystem does. In fact, we call that whole category of misuse of the meme space bad faith discourse. This is discourse which is not done for the good of humanity so that we can all have better lives, but rather so we can make more money, so we can sell more widgets, etc. 
And a game B world will not have this runaway dimension that people are always trying to maximize, irrespective of what it means for the world. Wow, this is super fascinating, Jim. So I love what you're saying about the difference between game A and moving into a new way to move through the world. And you worked in corporate America, and you're a change agent. And there's some type of personal change that's the necessary first step for game B to emerge. And Maybe that's why game B is still a theory at this point, because getting away from consumerism, hierarchy, status, obsession with fashion and appearances is sounds great in theory, but in practice, it's really challenging to get away from the world. It's almost like you are living in a different paradigm than the rest of the world, especially for culture. So where do you land on the divide between fixing the institutions and fixing ourselves. Is there a direct correlation between when we go deep and we get away from these capitalist consumerist structures that we will eventually be able to evolve the institutions? That's a wonderful question. It hits right on the seam of two different ways of thinking about Game B. There's certainly a group of people, Game B people, believe personal change first. And then there's another group of people who believe in building the new institutions first. And I will confess, I used to be an institutions first person, but after pondering it quite a bit, I realized the two have to co-evolve. And here's why. Any group of people on any given criteria exists on a distribution. Some are taller, some are shorter. Some are smarter, some are less intelligent. Some are more glib, some are more tongue-tied. Some are extroverts, some are introverts. Well, it turns out that I've come to believe that humans vary considerably on their ability to make those personal changes in how they think about the world before the institutions exist. Only a very small number of people, a couple of percent, two, three, four, and probably no more than 5% of people are on what I call the left side of the distribution, where they're prepared to give up those list of things I talked about even before they get any real solid feedback from a new set of institutions. So where I've come out. Those are the hippies, right? <laughs> you could call them hippies. <laughs> Who are these people? Yeah. Uh, Jordan calls Vulcan something or others. In fact, so good that I'm going to have to pull up Jordan's transcript and see what he called them. It was so good. Vulcan Spartans is what Jordan calls them, which uh, I don't know exactly what he means by that. And I'll find out next time I have them on the show, which I think is later this month. And some of them are a bit hippie-ish, but others are uh, Stoics, right, which is quite different than hippies. The Neo-Stoicism, I see, is a very useful part of leading to somewhere between 2 and 5% of people who can just say, you know, fuck all that stuff. Oh, by the way, I didn't know, am I allowed to cuss on your show? Yeah, go for it. Oh, okay. That's, I mean, I'll, I'll mark it as explicit. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, truthfully, it takes only a certain number, of small number of people can do that, but there's more and more every day. People who are, as we say, playing game B, and not necessarily in toto. I mean, most people don't do every aspect of what I'm saying, but a few do. I've got a good friend of mine. She is absolutely brilliant. She could be a partner at Goldman Sachs and making a zillion dollars. She's got fashion model good looks. And what does she do? She lives in an illegal home-built house off the grid, works as little as possible for pay, and spends her time, drives an old beater of a car, and spends her time making the world a better place because she knows it's the right thing to mm. do. People like her are very rare, but they're there. And so this is what I've come to think. Would you call her like a neo-Stoic? Uh, I think that? she's more of a neo-anarchist, actually. But maybe she has some aspects of Stoicism as well. 
but she certainly has completely thrown the bug of fashion and appearance, you know, the game that young women are sucked into so often by the pernicious signals that they receive over social media and mass advertising, Mm -hmm. which is... Yeah, the matrix programming. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And she's thrown that one out. She's clearly thrown away money. I mean, she lives on as little as she can get away with, even though she's the kind of person who could literally make a million dollars a year if she was so inclined. No longer important to her. So back to your question, I've come away with the view that you start with this small number of people who, by genetics, by upbringing, by life's accidents, are prepared to play game A in part, I mean game B in part, with or without the institutions, and let them start to play, bring them together, and then let them design some institutions that work for them one or two or three or four, and build them over time. And they should keep in mind that this is a work in progress, that trying to build a whole social operating system on day one is a stupid utopian idea, and we should actually learn by doing. And then here's the the key part, the real takeaway I come to quite recently. They also need to be self-aware enough to know that they are extreme personalities. The people who are willing to forego all the social signals that most people hop to today are not the same as the other 95% of people. And so the institutions they build, while they might suit themselves, will not necessarily suit the other 95%. So they need to have some forethought and some discernment about how the institutions should be designed, not only so they work for the 2 to 5% Vulcan Spartans, so they'll also work for, let's say, the 25 or 20% early adopters and provide some leadership for the next group of people who might not be as hardcore and will only be willing to adopt Game B when at least some of the institutions are in place. Do you find that these people who are leading the new paradigm, do you think that it's important to have the experiences at Goldman Sachs to know how systems are corrupted and what we don't want to bring into the new world? And does this establish some level of credibility for these early adopters to create this new paradigm? Yeah, first I make it clear that neo-anarchism is one of only many streams and a relatively rare one amongst Game B players. We have people with all kinds of philosophies. But to your question, that's actually another good question. And I'd say, well, no means indispensable. Having some exposure to the belly of the beast is very helpful. The person I mentioned did a stint at a very high-profile consulting firm in one of the big cities. I think she lasted two years and said, yuck. Wow, that's a long time if you're not cut out for that. Ah, (laughs) You know, two, three years. We can stand on our heads for two Mm -hmm. or three years, I would tell people, especially when you're young. Mm -hmm. You know, don't make too early a judgment. But yeah, two years is a perfectly reasonable time to live in the belly of the beast and decide whether the beast is for you or not. And as I think about it, many of the other Game B players today have had experience at quite intense levels of the beast. And that does bring some insight and probably some credibility, but it also probably brings some programming. You know, I know I was a Game A player of uh, pretty hard intensity. And while it certainly provided me some instincts on what's wrong with Game A, probably also has indelibly imprinted itself on my personality in ways that may make it difficult to be a 100% mm-hmm. Game B player. But it's a fine line between using that as fuel to create the world that you want versus using it as reactionary. Or if you're not self-aware enough, not fitting into a certain system, you can become reactionary. And then using that rage against the system, rage against the machine, then you actually bring that into the new paradigm no matter what because it's in your subconscious. (laughs) 
Absolutely. And I do think that one of the things Game B has always tried to be is a little bit of rage against the machine is good, right? To give you some energy. But 95% of the discourse has to not be rage against the machine. It has to be what we call generative. It has to be about building the new. Because truthfully, and this is people whine about their paths and you know, they had this trauma or that trauma. I say, fuck all that shit. The reason we call it the past is because it's the past. It don't matter. What matters is the future. So let's build a better future rather than whining about the bad things from the past. I love it. And this brings me to another point that I feel like it's really apparent in the cultural discourse right now and throughout the fabric of philosophy and spirituality. And there seems to be two diametrically opposed forms of spiritual practice despite that they share some similar philosophical roots. Now, you mentioned the past is the past and kind of move on, build a better future. And that is possibly the school of like transcending the human condition, desire, the physical universe in an effort to become like the, our true selves. And then the other is the school of personal transformation, embracing the fact that we are spiritual, creative beings and we experience a physical existence and then applying this practice of identifying and erasing that malware for a better performance, improving our existence. So where does this game B fall into the equation of whether it's spiritual bypassing or whether it's actually using our past to transform and evolve? Well, first, I'm somewhat famous for hating the word spirituality. Okay. In fact, I refer to it as the S word, and I'll tell you why. I'm a rigorous scientific materialist. I don't believe in metaphysical stuff, and the word spirit just bugs me. I'm assuming anybody who uses the word spirit is assuming there are actually spirits out there, even though I know that doesn't cover everybody who uses the term. So I just do not like that term. I find it annoying and off-putting, and so I never use it to denounce it or ironically. What about the word consciousness? I mean, I know we can talk about that. Yeah, and indeed, a good part of my day job, such that it is, is the scientific study of consciousness. My view is that consciousness is a biological phenomena, no distant, different digestion or respiration. In fact, one of my, uh, John Searle, the philosopher, was the one who started saying that consciousness is no different than digestion. And then Rutz add on to that and also often has the same end result. So I think consciousness is also a term that's overused in a kind of blathery, new agey kind of way. Consciousness is something real. I believe animals all the way back, at least to reptiles, have consciousnesses and that they are expensive to maintain both genetically and energetically. And they are an important part of how animals operate in the universe. But I don't believe there's anything magical about them. I don't believe in cosmic consciousnesses. I don't believe in extended consciousnesses. I can talk endlessly on the evidence against any of those precepts. However, back to your point, I do believe that our consciousness is emergent from our brains, right? The firing patterns in our brains and also signals from our body and the body and the brain work together in a holistic fashion is where our consciousness comes from. And the word I prefer rather than spirituality is psychological tools. We can do various things with our minds to make them operate in ways they don't operate in the everyday. The brain has a series of networks that it wants to operate, so-called default networks. In fact, one of them is called the default network. When you're just sort of do-to-do, not paying that much attention, kind of loafing, you know, maybe listen to a little music in the background, the default network in your brain is the predominant one. There's also another brain network that operates when you're actively engaged in a detailed activity. Let's say you're taking your bicycle apart and putting it back together again. 
There's a characteristic network for very intense, detailed work. But there's also other networks that your brain can become impatterned onto. And spiritual practices are mostly about just that, whether it's doing meditation or using some of these other tricks. You know, I like one, the biurnal sound systems is a kind of an interesting one. Uh, there's another little system where you listen to music while you have what's essentially a simple EEG that's looking for a pattern and it makes a clicking noise in your ear when your brain falls into the wrong pattern. And it's amazingly effective, at least for me, of pushing my brain. What's the name of this? Uh, I don't remember. I can look it up and send it to you. You can okay. answer the show notes. I haven't done it in a couple of years. The regular meditation-y kinds of things, you know, focusing on your breath, focusing on a spot right in front of your nose. What really works great for me is just go into the woods half an hour, 15 minutes after sunset, but while the world is still light and let the light gradually fade away while you're in the woods, you clear your mind. So your mind is also gradually fading away. And my mind then goes off into the wild blue yonder is operating on some other pattern of neural firings that isn't any of our everyday neural firing patterns. The last time I did that, I guess I entered like a forest and there was, I entered like a tree consciousness, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. When I go, I go real far, right? I've always mm -hmm. been, found it quite easy to put myself in these alternate patterns. Fortunately, I always come back, at least so far. And, Thankfully uh, for know, our listeners, you're here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe I didn't come back. And who you got is the guy that didn't come back. Hard to say, right? <laughs> uh, right, but, exactly. Yeah. On the other hand, I don't obsess about these things, right? I know some people, they organize their whole lives around meditation, blah, blah. And I probably do these kinds of things once or twice a year, right? And I do them in the same way I might do psychedelic drugs. An interesting way to shake up the box a little bit. In fact, I probably do psychedelic drugs. That's even counting THC products as a psychedelic less than once a year these days. And I do these things on the order of once or twice a year because I think it's useful to break up the everyday routines. On the other hand, I personally don't find them the kind of thing I'd want to do every day or even every week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, because you aren't sure exactly what consciousness is yours and what is attributed to these, whether it's hallucinogenics or plant medicines, whatever is your medicine of choice these days. So that's interesting because you have a really unique kind of understanding or the way that you articulate consciousness is very different than a lot of the new age talk that's out there today. And I like how you described it as like a psychological awareness. And it's a little tricky because I am driven by both sides, partly by an intellectual understanding of the divine or you know, another type of consciousness that's eminent throughout our existence. And then I'm also driven by the embodied awareness. And the only thing that I know to be true is if I can experience it. So I'm kind of towing the lines on both sides these days. And that's why I love talking to people like you who have such a unique philosophy and understanding around the psychology of our human behavior and our experiences. So you mentioned that you use meditation sometimes, and how important are these tools in accessing these different states of consciousness to our human evolution? I think in my case only, they're mildly helpful from time to time. I know other people claim that they're hugely important to them, and maybe they are. I also know people who smoke marijuana every day, and I certainly would not recommend that as a useful activity to each his own, what works for you. As long as you consider them. I yeah, everyone has different body chemistries and stuff like that, too. Yeah, though probably less so than the New Agers would let you believe. As long <laughs> as you approach them from the perspective that they're psychological tools and that they're psychological tools that are not well-known and are not well-defined and that you should try them as experiments and see what works for you. 
I would suggest is the right way to approach them. Don't believe any of the horse shit you hear from the new agers. In my opinion, it's all horse shit. Might be wrong, but that's my view. And unfortunately, humans have a tendency to believe fancy stories with lots of details. And so you see these new age gurus, you know, peddling this line of horse shit or the other, and lots of people fall for it. And it's important to remember that these made up stories are just that, made up stories, unless there is some solid reproducible proof otherwise. And, you know, I keep my mind open. I'm a scientific realist, so I'm not one who's going to say there is no universal consciousness or what have you, but I'm going to say I am not going to spend any time thinking about it until someone can bring me reproducible proof of same. And I would suggest other people should have that same standard of evidence when people are around selling their prescriptions. Mm, Interesting. Let's go back to something you mentioned earlier in that you came full circle. So originally you believed that institutions first in order to change human structures and societies. And then you went back to believing that personal change came first. What was necessary? And then you ended your answer by saying that the two have to co-evolve. So why did you go from like thinking that institutions would change first back to the work of personal development needs to happen first? What actually happened to you? Maybe you can give like a personal story or something when you were in corporate America, because as change agents, a lot of my listeners are, you know, visionaries and change agents and people that are kind of misfits or rebels and they don't fit into that system a certain way of being, to use the metaphor, like they're square pegs and round holes. And instead of fitting into the round holes, we're creating a whole new system where square pegs can exist freely and we can co-evolve. So how would you guide people who may want to change systems and they may be, you know, these neo-anarchists, whatever label you want to put on them, but people who don't fit into these systems, you know, what are some necessary first steps that people can take to do this personal transformation if they want to create a better world? Well, first, I want to clarify that I was never a personal transformation first person. Mm -hmm. I was an institution's first, and then I have come to believe you have to have both simultaneously in a evolutionary perspective. But also remember my earlier comment that people will vary on the continuum of how easy it is for them to cast off the game apparatus. And frankly, for some people, they shouldn't be early adopters. They'll be very unhappy, right? And each person has to understand themselves. But I do have a few things I can talk about that they should test themselves on and see if they're ready or if they should be a late adopter who comes because, you know, I think you have a marketing background. We all know the crossing the chasm adoption curve. You have the super innovators, you have the early adopters, you have the early majority, the late majority and the late adopters. And game B will have that same curve that the iPhone had, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. (laughs) And so some people are more appropriate to be early adopters, some later. Here's the first one, though. Do you have courage, both physical courage, the courage to have people think you're eccentric? Do you have the courage to strike out on your own? If you're a fearful person, then probably you should wait because going to play game B will put you into situations that if you're a fearful person, you may not be comfortable in. Second, are you able to discard the trappings, right? Do you feel like you have to drive So first courage, then discard the trappings, right? A very good sign is if you can get rid of that BMW and buy a Kia, right? Truthfully, they're both fine cars. They'll both get you from point A to point B. And the fact that you have to have yourself wrapped up in the idea that you're a person who drives a BMW, you're not prepared to do that. You're not ready for game B. You can't discard these kinds of stuff. Third is can you be disciplined about money in the game A sense? 
And specifically, can you live without always building your debt? Debt is the opium of game A. And if the best sign is if you're a person who has never gotten themselves in a serious debt or only for very good reason and have your debt under control. But if you're a person who struggles with running up credit card bills to do goofy shit like go out to dinner or go on vacations, buy underwear. I knew uh, one poor young woman who ran up a $35,000 bill for underwear, if you can believe it. I'm sure I've spent nowhere near $35,000 worth of underwear my whole life. I don't even know what $35,000 worth of underwear looks like. That's fancy underwear. (laughs) That must be a lot of fancy underwear, right? If you struggle with debt, I would say you're not ready to be a game B person yet and work on that. In fact, there's a wonderful book called Your Money or Your Life. You should read and start to implement the things in that book. It'll help you both discard stuff and realize stuff is just stealing life energy from you or the work necessary to get stuff and that debt is poison. So if you haven't got to those two points yet, think twice about becoming an active game B player. You can become a partial game B player. But each time you move in those directions, you're becoming a bit of a game B player. So courage, discard stuff, and financial discipline. Uh, What I'd say, easy things for people to try to see where they are on the readiness curve for game B. I love it. And like I think when I listen to this, it's kind of like there are these different waves of evolution of people that are kind of figuring this out. Sometimes you learn the hard way. Other times it's natural to our identities quote-unquote identity in quotes because we are these ever-evolving humans and what identity may seem relevant today may we might want to cast aside in a month from now. So, you know, when we get introduced to new ideas like you're presenting, being aware that, you know, it's all a game, whether it's game A or game B, we're playing a game whether we're aware of it or not. And these tools and books that you mentioned are all guidance points and ways that we can wake up to what's really going on behind the scenes of our society. And you bring up a really good point about, you know, not falling victim to debt or the matrix style programming, you know, the advertising. It's everywhere. Like there's nowhere you can turn where you're not being programmed to want to buy the latest, whether it's underwear or whether it's the latest eyelash trend for women. All these tools and programs out there that are like, you have to get this and you have to make your beauty better this way. And it's really challenging, especially, you know, for women out there today to not be a part of this program. So I like that you give really helpful suggestions on how to remove yourself from that. And apart from living like off the grid, where can we go? Where is this happening today? I guess is my question, because I want to be part of more of Game B. I'm done with Game A. And I want to be around more of these types of people. So where can we go to build this new world? First, let me hop on what you just said, and then I'll answer your question. Finding the other people is really important. You know, we are a very social variety of ape, super social variety of ape. We're even more social than chimpanzees. And so it's going to be only a few of us who are true maniacs can do it on our own. So finding the other people, first perhaps online, but this is something I am very strong on, online connections only constitute weak links. To really build culture, you have to have strong links. So you have to find people and interact with them face-to-face in real time over an extended period of time to really help you level up into game B-hood. So use the internet to find the others and then go find them or invite them to come see you and exist at the level of human to human. In terms of where it's happening, here's, especially now that game B is starting to really fire up again, it kind of been quiet for a few years, but it's really rolling. I think one consensus that's coming up is that game B will best be played for now in low cost areas. 
I mean, just think if you're stuck living in San Francisco or some damn thing where last I heard a one-bedroom apartment is $3,600 a month. What the hell, right? You can't play game B uh, with those kinds of rents. And on the other hand, not that many people really. I'm laughing because I'm just outside San Francisco. <laughs> probably paying almost that much, right? Uh, yeah. While in, you know, small town America, you can get a one bedroom apartment for maybe $550 a month, right? Mm-hmm. And so reduce the overhead. Reducing overhead is key. Yeah, to the very bare bones. And for instance, I live in a small city of half time, Stanton, Virginia, population 25,000. Get a nice, a really nice apartment for thousand dollars a month and a perfectly reasonable one for five fifty. You can buy a house for hundred thousand dollars and you can buy quite nice house for say three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You know, compare the equivalent to that in the Bay Area or New York or Connecticut, New Jersey. Forget about it. Entirely different way of life. I'm seeing more and more of the game B players either migrating to such places or considering migrating to such places so they don't have to feel like they're stuck in the rat race of making the mega bucks so they can have all these signs and symbols of their wonderfulness and hang out with other people who are also flaunting their signs and symbols. So I think that's what I'm seeing so far. Find the others, get together with them as humans face-to-face, and probably they're going to rally in lower-cost places deemed not on the fast track. I imagine Detroit will be a great place. I know people are thinking about Cleveland. My daughter moved to Pittsburgh fairly recently. For She's not really a Game B person quite, but she's a classic Game A player either. And heck, people live in cold places for a long time. Suck it up. Don't be a wimp, right? What's more important, you know, having warm weather or changing the world and and crashing game A, right? (laughs) So you bring up another point about mortgages. Is having a mortgage still a part of game A? It's unavoidable for most people. But again, don't buy more house than you absolutely need and make sure that the uh, mortgages, that you can pay it off. And if you can pay it off more rapidly than the term, so much the better. Get out from underneath that debt. If you could take a uh, 15-year mortgage, if you can pay it off in seven, that's great. And, you know, 10 isn't terrible. But the idea of paying the minimum necessary for 30 years, that's pretty nuts. That's game A, not game B. Got it. So it depends on how you do it. And it comes down to building new values. You know, it's about self-actualization, becoming our core value instead of he who dies with the most toys wins. We don't want to be flaunting our BMWs. We should be happy in the Kia that you mentioned. So this is how we optimize society for sustainability and quality of life and not money on money return. So with that said, there are certain layers of self-actualization that happens when you kind of remove yourself from game A. Is there any way to kind of prepare people for any type of awakenings, or maybe you don't like that word either, but like the shift that happens to individuals as they remove themselves and extricate themselves from the system? Yes, many of them, especially if they're the right people, they're the right people to be early adopters, will feel liberated like they've never been liberated before. And one of the things they will see, and this is something uh, Jordan has started to talk about quite a bit, and something I believe in hugely, is conviviality. We'll be spending a significant amount of our time just hanging out with our friends, having a good time, right? That doesn't mean spending lots of money. It means sitting around at maybe a table we built ourselves, eating food that maybe we grew ourselves, drinking beer that maybe we brewed ourselves. And just having a good old human time. That's what people used to do when they had spare time. Now they rush around trying to impress each other. Or even worse, trying to impress people on, what's that horrible thing 
that's worse than Facebook, Instagram. Yeah, trying to impress people on Instagram, which I've only looked at to look at my wife's photography. But spend your spare time trying to impress people on Instagram by how cute you look. I can't imagine a worse possible thing to do. And something so game A that you might as well have a tattoo in the middle of your forehead that says game A. So conviviality, hanging out with real people, enjoying the basics of life. So you mentioned a great point about Instagram and socially engineering kind of ourselves to be seen and perceived a certain way. I guess that brings us back to meme space pollution, as you mentioned earlier. So, and you mentioned to find the others online is an important step in the process. So how can that be used for good? Is, is there any way possible that we can use tools like Instagram as a force for good? Because we have to find the others. How do we find the others if we're not doing it online through Instagram or through, I guess, podcasts is maybe a good part of the system. How do you see the different ways that we can connect online as either placating to the system or working against the system? Excellent question, right? Because these things have become ubiquitous and they're actually quite useful if used correctly. I don't know anything about Instagram, so I've never even posted anything on Instagram, but so I couldn't tell you how it works. But I am very familiar with Facebook, Reddit, and Twitter. And let's use Facebook uh, as the first example. The real action, at least to my mind, on Facebook has been in the groups, not out in the public, right? There are millions, literally, of groups. And if you want some places to find Game B players, there's the Game B group, which is growing very rapidly, full of Game B players, almost nothing but. There's another group called Rally Point Alpha, which was a, uh, a spinoff from one of Jordan Greenhall, now Jordan Hall's essays, which was, has been a very useful place in learning how to deprogram ourselves and how to do what we call sense making, which is how to peel away the onion of horseshit that media and social media puts in front of us and figure out what's really true. So for sense making, Rally Point Alpha, for the straight dope Game B, go to the Game B group on Facebook. There's also a growing Game B community on Twitter. Use the hashtag Game B, and you'll find a growing number of people and resources uh, talking about it. As far as I know, there's not a Game B group on Reddit yet, but somebody should go start one. And try to limit your time spent out in the, you know, the, uh, the public spaces of Facebook. For instance, I find Facebook both seductive and disgusting. And so I take a six-month sabbatical every year from Facebook. And I'm on my sixth month. I've been doing it for, I don't know, last four or five years. I'm about halfway through my current six-month sabbatical. And the only time I go on Facebook is post links to my podcast, period. Well, I say period. Once in a while, I'll you know, check in on the Game B group or the Rally Point Alpha group. But in general, just stay away from that shit. It ain't good for you, right? The public Facebook. And if you are going to be on Facebook, spend more of your time in groups. It doesn't have to be just Game B. Suppose you're interested in model airplanes. Go find a model airplane group. Suppose you're interested in transcendental meditation. I'm sure there's uh, groups for that. The group phenomena in Facebook, as long as you stay away from gurus and psychos, is a good thing. The public Facebook, everybody's trying to impress each other how wonderful their lives are. Very pernicious. Totally. That was the next question for you is why. And it, it's totally because you're constantly comparing and everyone's life looks quote unquote perfect on Facebook and Instagram when, you know, the core issue is going deeper and really getting into the deep work that's necessary to grow our brains instead of shrink them. Which brings me to my next question about one of your posts on Medium has the title Reclaiming Our Cognitive Sovereignty, in which you describe your decision to switch to a flip phone. And you go into extreme detail explaining why and how you've done this. Use the analogy about food 
you know, foods are designed to program you to want them again and again. And there's a hyper rewarding nature of smartphones, which is conceptually similar, though different in the details. Like Facebook and Instagram are like the Cheetos, which provide a very strong reward with each swallow. And smartphones are designed to provide a large number of generally small rewards every time we use them. So one question is, do you still have a flip phone? And would you recommend that people kind of go back to some more basic forms of technology? And you do preference the article by saying that you are not a Luddite, you are extreme tech, like you're very into technology, but you've made the very self-aware decision to go to a flip phone. So do you recommend it? And how has it improved your cognitive functioning? Oh, I absolutely recommend. I will say I'm not perfect. I do often carry my iPhone mostly for a very good diet and exercise app called MyFitnessPal. But of course, I get seduced into doing other things too. But I'd say if you don't have a must-have app, the other must-have app for me is when I travel. I mentioned this in the essay. I carry my smartphone for Uber. I love Uber or its competitor Lyft or local competitors when you can find them. So I'm not willing to give that up. But as I say in the essay, you can find replacements for a large number of things that you thought you needed a smartphone for. And if you do that, you will find sucking power of the social networks and other things is massively reduced. Now, it doesn't go to zero. And I'll say I certainly spend a lot of time surfing the web, you know, looking at Twitter, this and that. But if you only do it on your computer, that's a shitload less time each day than on your phone. I said in the uh, essay, one of the things that really woke me up is I realized I'm walking to the elevator to go down and walk the dog. I'm checking my phone. (laughs) Why the hell do I do that, right? Nothing's going to happen in you know, 15 seconds while I walk to the elevator. The worst possible habit is to wake up in the middle of the night and look at your phone. Yeah. Holy mm-hmm. shit, right? Somebody really <laughs> needs to get a hold of you, they'll call you. Otherwise, I'm sure I can wait until the morning, right? In fact, if you're not ready to make the big step, ditching the smartphone, just absolutely get the smartphone out of your bedroom, right? The other one to do is when you come home, put it on the charger out of hand's reach. There's a fair amount of research that shows that if it's within hand's reach, it's calling at you all the time. It's like it's a cannibalizing your attention. The further it is away from you, and particularly if you can't see it, the less it's calling to you. But if you can kick the habit entirely, go to a slip phone, read my article, Reclaiming Your Cognitive Sovereignty on Medium, you will be happy that you did. Great. And I'll put all of these details in the show notes, artofhumanity.io. So, Jim, where are you heading right now? I know you've been writing a lot of important work on Medium, and you have an amazing podcast called The Jim Rutt Show. What are you working on right now? Jim Rutt Show is my number one project at the moment. Kicked it off in July. uh, Yeah, I think we went live on July 9th. I started recording episodes a month prior. And I'm really ramping up. This week, I have three episodes I'm recording, as you know. It's a heck of a lot harder to be the host of a podcast than it is to be a guest, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I'm very impressed by the preparation you've done. You've done a lot of prep work, a lot of research. I do the same. I spend probably seven to 10 hours on each guest. So it's a lot of work. Wow. But I also involved in lots of other projects. I have a game that I've created, which will be coming out right soon now. And it's be, uh, ironically enough, a smartphone game in support of my cognitive science research. I continue to do uh, research on the scientific study of consciousness. I continue to advise some people working in the AI space and others working in the blockchain public ledger space. Let's see, I'm involved with advising scientific institutions. They're still on the board of the Santa Fe Institute, on the board of visitors for the Brain and Cognitive Science Department at MIT, on the board of advisors for the Fralin Biomedical Institute. So I do a lot of stuff. 
And I would say, I think I'm trying to do good work on them all to help move the world in the right direction, which is at least gently towards game B, and more specifically, a what comes next, which is better than game A. I love it. So you're really on the pulse of everything. And one last question before we go. Since you are on this pulse, what do you see as the emerging patterns in society that hint at what's to come next in this game B? I think the early work of the Game B players is at least indicative of what's coming, deprogramming, as we talked about. But another direction I think is actually very interesting is the Extinction Rebellion that's starting to spin up in the UK and starting to spread elsewhere, where people are finally saying, fuck this shit about destroying our Earth with never-ending, accelerating materialism and energy extraction. These are people who said, mostly young people, saying, we're destroying our world. This is insane. We need to go out in the streets and put a stop to this. I suspect this will be also part of what emerges to what comes first, because the forcing function that will force us to adopt something new is the fact that game A will destroy the ecosystem by 2100. And if we haven't reformed our ways soon, we will be on a road from which we will not be willing or able to pull back from. So I see the Extinction Rebellion, which is completely separate from the Game B world, as a very interesting sign that things are a-changing. I also think the uh, people turning out in the streets in Hong Kong, in Chile, in France, are all very interesting, showing that people aren't taking this shit anymore. They don't yet know what comes next. They know what they have. Game A is not working for them. Jim, thank you so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity. Well, thanks you for asking. It's been very enjoyable. You've asked some wonderful questions. (laughs) You made it to the end of this podcast. This means the world to me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io, for show notes or past interviews. You can also message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann, and my handle is beingishuman. That's B-E-I-N-G-I-S-H-U-M-A-N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've enjoyed from this episode. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcasts right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. You can also share this episode with two of your friends who you think would enjoy it. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode, evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Listen, explore, evolve.